Hello, I'm Llewellyn King, the host of White House Chronicle. Welcome to the broadcast, which is done remotely, as so much is these days. Today, we take a look at the pandemic from an angle. We look at how news is adjusting. We look at what I call voodoo science, which is unfortunately obscuring so much where wrong things or things that don't work are being foisted on the public or pushed. And finally, we take a look at the predicament of people in rural areas where there isn't much broadband, where there aren't very many hospitals, and where the crisis is particularly acute. As I might say, it also is in the inner city where those same conditions may prevail. Our first guest is Josh Fenton, CEO of Go Local Providence, a website which covers the news like a local newspaper, the way that local newspapers used to, or sometimes still do. You're doing something that I have been admiring for several years now, and that is creating a new local news outlet. Using the internet is called Go Local Providence. And uh, how did you start? Where did you come from? Are you a newsman? Uh, no, and I, I, I'll be honest, I think that's been part of the success. Uh, we weren't trying to replicate a newspaper or a TV station. We were trying to sort of learn from the best ways to get content out from each of those. Um, I had had careers in government and in advertising and saw what was coming really about the time that the iPhone came out. When you look at the iPhone, you say, oh, my God, the connectivity. This is, you know, in 07. And you'll be able to watch videos on how to cook a, a great sirloin. You'll be able to do anything. And, and immediately, as we all know, the iPhone took over human behavior and, and smartphones uh, alike. So in 2010, we launched Go Local, uh, first in Providence, and it's called Go Local Prov. And uh, we kind of knew we had a little bit something right, right from the start. Rhode Island, right. Yes, in Providence, Rhode Island. And we've subsequently uh, launched one in Worcester, Mass. So we have two sites going up right now. Providence is by far the bigger. Providence, uh, Llewellyn, as you know, uh, Rhode Island is a rich news uh, opportunity. There's always something going on, whether it's political corruption or, or whatnot. There's no lack of news in this market. You touch on something that I'm, I've often talked about in other contests, and that's the need for the new maybe be, to be totally dissociated from the old. I've often said that airplanes were made by people with names like Sikorsky and Boeing. Uh, they weren't made by General Motors or Ford, people who knew about sheet metal, knew about engines, but alas, were not able to adjust to the era of aviation. And you're doing the same thing. I'm very much a newspaper man. I've been a newspaper man all my life. Before newspapers, there were town criers. I assume back in the day, town criers were pretty good about getting the news out. They stood on the corner, people gathered around. It was very one-on-one. -on -one. I think they were good news outlets. I don't know, wasn't there. And then newspapers took over and had functionally a 200-year run, uninterrupted, well, complete utter dominance, and, perfect, and a perfect business model, right? They were all, in, in most markets, they were complete monopolies. Uh, that's right. That's right. When they were greatly helped by their own technology improving, the linotype machine in 1893 was quite revolutionary. It came along just at the right moment when general education 
was, was coming of age when people had been to school, they wanted to read. I think there were 20 newspapers in New York, etc. Nonetheless, I hope local newspapers survive, but you're there doing the job in case they don't. And we do desperately need local newspapers to cover the local news. We can't all live by the national and international news. We live locally. Uh, how, how big is your staff? How do you do? Do you cover the courts? Do you cover uh, the legislature? Uh, yes, absolutely. So uh, total number of contributors paid, freelancers, production, etc., is uh, 29. Full time is five. So uh, very, very different decentralized structure. We do do about 15 hours of live broadcast, video driven per week. That generates uh, significant revenue for us the way we built it. What is the message in what you've done for the nation, for other cities, for other states? So I think there's a couple of things. One, we're, we're on the edge of seeing a major corporation in the United States that owns 300 daily newspapers and 1,000 weeklies connect on the verge of economic collapse. Their stock has plummeted. Um, I think their cash position is questionable. And they owe one point nearly $8 billion uh, to Leon Black at, at Apollo Global on a five-year note with 11.5% interest. That, that's tough sledding if we were in a perfect economy. Uh, we are in a recession and maybe significantly more. Uh, the, the secret to this is, is the journalism, that you write real stories, big boy, big girl journalism. You're willing to take on governors or senators or major corporations and write the stories in a, uh, a digitally friendly way. You, you can't write a 2,400 word uh, investigative story. No, no one will read it. I could put free gold bar at the 1800 word mark and we wouldn't give away any gold bars because that's not the behavior of the consumer today. And I don't know that newspapers have adapted well to understanding where the user is, where the reader is, where the viewer is uh, so, to be able to connect to them. Josh, Josh, in 10 years, if I'm living in Anchorage or if I'm living in San Antonio, I will be able to get my news, local news, political news that is local, uh, uh, crime news that is local, etc. even the traffic. I will be able to get it off my phone as I'm doing other things. And that will be the primary source of local news. Is that what you're saying? Uh, I Listen, the average person picks up, according to Google, their, their uh, phone 140 times a day. Um, I want to be there. It's in everyone's pocket. I want to communicate to them leveraging social media, especially Facebook. I want to hit them with email updates uh, nonstop. Um, and as long as I have that trust relationship with that reader, uh, then they'll uh, appreciate that content coming over. If they don't appreciate that content, they don't trust that content, they think it's silly or frivolous, then they will de-follow uh, de our email strategy. Clearly, uh, Josh, clearly you have an advantage that you don't have to uh, go to a newsroom to produce your news, uh, your news site. Uh, but uh, what is the message? What are you doing to cover the pandemic today in Providence, in Rhode Island, or in any other city, Worcester, Massachusetts, or sure. if you have, if you have uh, uh, competitors in other cities? 
What are these new sites doing to help people today? Sure. So um, I, I think we've had the best coverage in the marketplace of better than three TV stations and the in the hometown newspaper. Um, it starts off with complete coverage every morning, um, four to five stories at noontime every day. The former director of health for the state of Rhode Island comes online. We also have guests from Jean Lesseurs, Skyped in from Paris talking about what things are going on in France. We've had a woman from Italy, from Bolzano, Italy, Skype in each week telling us uh, what is going on there. We have Harry, the press conferences of the governor, the president. Um, we've got about, uh, we started covering this. I'll, I'll tell you, this is where our advantage was. It's the third week in January, we had a major interview with the head of the epidemiology at the Warren Alpert Medical School at Brown University. Uh, that was months ahead of almost any other news organization, including highly respected national news organizations. I, I, I'm surprised that whether it's Washington or the states didn't understand what was coming when you lock down a city of 11 million people and only China could lock down a city of 11 million people. You well, gotta think that's gonna come uh, across the world and across the country at some point. Josh, thank you so much for coming on White House Chronicle. It's been a pleasure to have you and good luck with this very important public service that you have mounted. Most important because of the pandemic and the terrible situation that prevails. Uh, Llewellyn, thanks so much. I greatly appreciate the opportunity to have the conversation. You be safe as well, please. The pleasure is ours. Thank you, be safe. We go now to MIT and to Mike Short, who is an associate professor of nuclear science. Welcome to the broadcast, Mike. I have introduced you earlier in this program as saying you're going to set us right on voodoo science, things that look terribly promising and turn out to be fraudulent or just don't work. How, as a scientist, do you feel about that predicament? I feel like it's a calling to do so. Um, whenever I'm given a chance to apply the scientific method rigorously and as quickly as possible, but without skipping any steps. Um, that's also why I'm on the show today, because you've given me an opportunity uh, to tell people that despite the urge to move quickly and to help in any way one can, you also have to slow down a little bit and make sure that what you're seeing in terms of data, in terms of the world around you, is actually what's going on. And uh, would you explain to those of us who are not scientists, what is the scientific method? Sure. The scientific method is posing a set of hypotheses. A hypothesis is a prediction about the way something works or the way that something is in a testable way, as in you phrase it so it can either be tested true or false, as in either your hypothesis is right or wrong. And then you go about in a rigorous and documented way, collecting data, which either supports or refutes your hypothesis. And at the end, you come to a conclusion. And the trick here is a lot of people want to help with lots of big problems. The one we talk about in my department quite a lot is climate change. The one that's taken over the airwaves now is COVID-19. And everybody wants to help, myself included. But we always have to remind ourselves, like in an inner dialogue, not to get ahead of ourselves and not to get emotionally attached to our hypotheses. That's very interesting. Now, you've just had a, a, an example of where you were if not attached, but where you had a hypothesis that is proven wrong. And that was that you could use gamma radiation 
the sanitized surgical masks in hospitals. And it, uh, what happened? It sounds like a great idea, kills the virus dead, right? Yeah, one, one of our students, Avalash Kramer, had this great idea to say, why don't we just irradiate these masks? Because we know from prior studies that were peer reviewed that a certain amount of radiation kills pretty much all viruses. So why can't we apply that radiation to these masks, which are undergoing a big shortage? So we tried it out. We hypothesized that gamma radiation would kill the virus and not degrade the mask's filtration efficiency, how effective it is at filtering out the virus. We know from previous literature that the amount of radiation we applied will kill the virus. We didn't know whether it would degrade mask efficiency. So we very quickly set out designing a scientific way of testing this hypothesis. In other words, we got a bunch of masks. We irradiated some of them to certain doses. We kept some unirradiated as a control group, as in something we didn't do anything to. And I went over to a hospital in Boston, donned what's called a fit test hood, which is just a big plastic bag you put over your head, and a little hole through which another person sprays a sweet smelling mist. And you're supposed to breathe it through the mask and supposedly, if it's working, you will not test the sweet spray. And if it doesn't work, if it fails, you'll test the sweetness. Well, we tried all of the masks, the irradiated ones and the unirradiated ones, and I never tested the sweet spray. And we thought, great, we've done it. We found another way to clean these masks without degrading their efficiency. It turns out that we weren't using the correct tests. People who knew better than us said, you can't just use that sugar spray test. You have to use this official particle infiltration test. And once we set up one of those pieces of equipment, the masks all failed the test, except for the control ones, which passed. So in the end, the data showed us that we were wrong, and we had to accept that. Mike, there are other ways of mass sanitation being booted about, mists and uh, ultraviolet light. Uh, what is your, your external analysis of those? You haven't tested them, but how do you feel about them? So uh, I should preface this by saying I don't know anything about medicine and I'm not an expert on these masks. I just saw a way in which maybe I could help with my knowledge of radiation because I've erased plastics before for a spin out of mine. Now, when it comes to these other ways of sterilizing these masks without degrading them, the data is starting to come out. And there are a couple ways one can sterilize them, like with dry heat, apparently exposing them to 70 degrees Celsius for 30 minutes deactivates the virus and doesn't ruin the mask. Same with a hydrogen peroxide or H2O2 plasma mist. And in some cases, the same with ultraviolet radiation. But this last one actually picked my attention quite a bit uh, because I saw some news articles on university sites and then picked up by the New York Times saying, hey, we can use ultraviolet radiation to disinfect these masks. And I was looking for the study that should have been linked to, and there was no link in any of these articles. They just said, we think we can do this. And that's what I'm here to warn against, is usually the last thing you do is go to the presses. Once you've got data, once you've got a repeatable conclusion, once you've got hopefully a peer-reviewed article. And in this case, the, the evidence is coming out in favor of ultraviolet sterilization. The news cycle started before the data came out. And that's what really worried me for a while. On the other hand, not everything that's invented is hailed by its peers when it's invented. And as a result, many great things in science down through the centuries have been uh, 
haven't been accepted by people in that discipline at that time. So you have to have a certain open-mindedness also. Striking the balance is hard. At the same time, you have to be open-minded to things that you didn't believe before and skeptical of new information. Instead of just running with it, you always have to ask yourself, where's the source of this information? Who is the source of this information? Was this information collected in a repeatable and rigorous way? Because oftentimes I've seen lots and lots of news articles rush to the presses with a, a nugget or an idea declaring success at conception, as one of my colleagues likes to say. The media is to blame. Uh, anyway, let me ask you in conclusion, and I, I take your point wholly that things are hyped way before they should be. But mm -hmm. let me ask you this. Do you expect in this crisis a lot of innovation? In wartime, we get innovation. In other crises, we've seen huge innovation. Are you expecting that? And you're really in the epicenter of innovation at MIT. Sure. Well, just to go back on the media point, I don't think the media are to blame as a group, but it's individual actions of people who run channels and people who report who are to blame. But I would never go so far as to blame the entire media. In fact, there are lots of sources that I trust. Um, as to your question about innovation, I think there are going to be three things that are going to be quite innovative coming out of this crisis. The first we're seeing right now is a huge innovation around producing one's own personal protective equipment, or PPE, um, part of a few groups with local hospitals helping design and sterilize, and some folks are 3D printing face shields and masks and things for these sorts of crises. And I think in general, we're going to see a huge wave of innovation for how to do things differently. Maybe we can, we can achieve the same objectives with different ways we didn't think possible. A second thing that I hope is going to change in the mind of most Americans is a renewal of faith in experts. And this is since the 60s, there's been this wave of anti-intellectualism striking various parts and people in this country, which has done a lot of harm. What I like that I'm seeing now is that people are putting their trust in medical experts to see them through this crisis. And I would almost call that a psychological innovation of sorts. It's done at the individual level, but people are seeing the value in experts who don't get into these disciplines for the money. They get into it because it's a calling, because they're passionate about it, about helping people in their own special way. We're seeing that now with the director of the CDC, and I hope we see that with lots more experts in other fields. Thank you so much for joining the broadcast, and your wise words are really just that quite remarkably wise. We go now to Washington and Jim Matheson, CEO of the National Rural Electric Cooperative Association. Welcome to the broadcast. Jim, uh, you are head of this association, which its name explains it. It is the Trade Association of, of the Rural Electric Co-ops, which are scattered across the country, which came into being largely during the depression yes. uh, because there was no electricity on the farms and small holdings and it didn't pay for the big electric companies to do it but uh, so this government program fostered these co-ops which are owned by local people why are you interested in the pandemic and what is the problem that people in the rural areas are facing well, a couple of things that we're interested in. First of all, with all the challenges that the country is facing this pandemic, it certainly is important that we keep the lights on. So we got to make sure our employees 
avoid getting sick because these are critical employees to maintain the electric system. Uh, secondly, something we've learned because we represent so many rural areas, we're in 48 states, we cover 56% of all the land in the United States, is we've learned all the more now the importance of connectivity when it comes to broadband. So many people are working at home, all the kids are home from school, and the lack of access to rural broadband in America has really been exposed during this pandemic, and it's another issue that we're just going to have to deal with. People rely so much on their cell phones and on their videos. And now, of course, we're doing this program entirely remotely. Yeah. But if you don't have broadband, you can't watch this. If you don't have broadband, you are very limited. And people in rural areas, which we tend to forget about, we like to romanticize them, but really not don't know much about them and don't want to know their problems. And yet they are very abandoned and feel abandoned. Uh, what can you do? You're a former congressman, I should say that, with uh, many years in Congress representing uh, a constituency in Utah. Uh, now you're in Washington lobbying the Congress from time to time. Uh, how is it going? Are you, are you succeeding in having the rural voice heard? Well, we think we are on many fronts. Specific to broadband, I can tell you that the interesting thing is this is what electricity was in the 1930s. The reason you didn't have electricity in rural areas was the sparse population and the for-profit companies couldn't make the economics work. So the people living in those rural areas formed their own consumer-owned electric cooperatives where they're the owners. And here we are, flash forward to 2020, we still have 21 million people in rural America that don't have access to broadband. And so a significant number of electric cooperatives are now going into the broadband business. Uh, there's a difference between broadband and electricity, I understand, but the reason we need to go into it is the same thing. Sparse population, hard to make the economics work, and yet our consumers want this. And mind you, we serve 42 million Americans electricity. We're, one in eight Americans is served by an electric cooperative, so we think we're a significant part of the national picture. Uh, we believe that the economy of rural America is so important to how this country functions. There's so much of our agriculture and food sector in rural America. There's so much manufacturing in rural America. And so it's important that we find best ways to allow the economic opportunity in rural America to succeed. And what was electricity in the 1930s, it's broadband in 2020. How will the co-ops overcome the economic disadvantage of broadband? Couple answers to that. First of all, it's gonna take uh, some government support and we've had real success in changing the mindset of the federal programs uh, that serve this. You know, when the Federal Communications Commission had its first, it was called an auction in the Connect America Fund to uh, serve for underserved or unserved areas for broadband, electric cooperatives were not even eligible to participate. We lobbied to change that. And in the second auction, we had 32 electric cooperatives in the country successfully uh, participate in that auction. And now the Federal Communications Commission is about to unveil its third round of auction. And we think we're going to be an even greater participant in that. So we are moving the ball forward in terms of us being able to be involved. But I'm not going to lie, because of the sparse population and the tough economics, having that federal grant to help with the capital cost of putting broadband in really is key to success. In order to put in broadband, what do you need? Optic fiber, towers? What is, what, are the, what is the infrastructure of broadband? Well, first of all, there's some different technologies, but 
Uh, it can be fiber and there's what goes fiber all the way to the home or it could be fiber to a pole and then you could have a what's called fixed wireless where from the pole there's a line of sight to the individual homes. What's interesting, we already have poles because we serve electricity over those poles and wires. And we also have a relationship with all those consumers. In addition, in a modern electric utility now, you already invest in fiber optic cable throughout your electric system through all the substations. So we've already got an investment in a backbone of fiber that we can leverage to serve the individual residential consumer at the end of the line. So it puts electric cooperatives in a very favorable position to realize the opportunity to leverage previous in poles and in fiber around our electric system to serve retail broadband as well. What about 5G? Is 5G uh, part of the broadband expansion or is 5G something on top of that? You know, it's interesting. I think that, and I'm not the technical expert on this, but from what I understand, 5G is clearly going to be a, an important part of broadband for more densely populated areas. But you've got to locate one of those small cell towers every, I don't know, a couple of hundred yards. And so, as I said, we represent the wide open spaces. We represent 56% of the landmass in America. And from what I've heard, the economics of 5G don't pencil out as well when you're talking about these vast open spaces with one or two people per mile, which is where electric cooperatives serve people. There are people who say that 5G is being oversold. Uh, we were just talking earlier in this broadcast to a, an assistant professor at MIT, and he was brewing the overselling of discoveries before they've been proved by scientific method. Uh, and there are those who say that uh, 5G is being oversold and that the old technology does most jobs. I, I'm not in a position to know. Have you heard that? Well, I, I, it's not so much what I've heard as what I see our members actually doing. As I said, we've got over 100 of our electric cooperatives. And by the way, there are no, around 900 electric cooperatives across the country. Over 100 are offering broadband right now. Uh, I don't know of any of them using 5G. Uh, so I just can speak from what's going on in the marketplace in rural America. As I said, 5G may have particular applications in more urbanized areas, but out where it's sparsely populated areas, I'm not familiar with any electric cooperative deploying that technology. What are you doing, Jim, to keep your workers safe during this pandemic? Well, uh, our over 900 cooperatives across the country are all taking steps to make sure their critical employees are safe. That means they're have gone to work at home for every function that can do so. Uh, for the line workers that go out to do repairs, uh, they're having them drive like, for example, in individual vehicles, they don't share vehicles, they're practicing social distancing. And in terms of power plant operators, cooperatives are making uh, steps to actually shelter them in place at the power plant, which is a real burden on the part of those employees, but they will stay there, live there for weeks at a time. And so they're bringing in cots, food, laundry equipment, everything to make it their second home because they want to isolate them from the public. It's asking a lot of those workers, but it tells you how committed they're keeping the lights on. Thank you so much for joining the broadcast, Jim. Good luck to you and be safe. We'll all okay, get through this eventually. I Cheers. appreciate it. Thank you. That's our show for today. Please be safe. Social distancing isn't fun, but it does work. Be safe. It's the most important thing. White House Chronicle is available as a podcast on Apple, Spotify, Stitcher, 
wherever you listen. We are there.